BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, I'm Whitney Port and this is With Wit. A lot of you may know me from reality TV and the reality is a lot's happened since the hills. With Wit is dedicated to having real, raw, and occasionally ridiculous conversations with the people who have had a profound impact on me. Life-changing moments, life-changing people. Because on With Wit, very little is off limits. Hi, everyone. Welcome to With Wit. It's officially 2023. In my last episode, I wasn't in the new year yet. And now here I am. I hope you all had a relaxing and renewing holiday season and feel even a little bit motivated just to start the new year. Anyways, if you don't, don't feel bad either. Zero, zero pressure put on yourself. If I've learned anything from this next episode, it's how much grace we must have with ourselves. This leads me to share a little bit about my next guest, Dr. Michelle Sager. Michelle is an award-winning lifestyle coach and sustainable behavior change researcher at the University of Michigan. For nearly three decades, she has pioneered methods to create sustainable, healthy behavior change. She is an advisor to leading global organizations and frequently interviewed in major media outlets like the New York Times, NPR, and the Wall Street Journal. Her latest book, The Joy Choice, challenges the habit paradigm with startling evidence from emerging science and her decades of coaching individuals on creating sustainable behavior change. We discussed her book, what it means to be an unhabiter, decision disruptions, and her thoughts on New Year's resolutions. A little bit before we get into the episode, just about what we did, even though you probably saw my Instagram, so not to be redundant, but we went to the most amazing hotel, Round Hill Hotel in Jamaica. It was gorgeous. We didn't leave the hotel. It was just one of those places where you do everything there. And it was unbelievable, beautiful. I have been waking up at the crack of dawn, like when it's dark out every single morning for the past almost three weeks now. So part of me feels really tired. Part of me also feels like some nights I'm getting a lot of sleep. I don't know. It all feels very weird. I think even when you do get a normal amount of sleep, if you wake up when it's dark, it still feels a little disorienting, but I'm trying to get into it. I'm trying to lean into it and see what I can do during that time to make it feel more productive as opposed to like resent it because if it's happening right now, I shouldn't try to push it away because 
odds are it will probably come back the more I try to resist against it. I am feeling great about getting into like normal routine post-holiday life. I'm feeling amazing that Sunny is in school. Obviously, zero connection with how much I love him, but there comes a point in time, I would say probably two weeks when your kid is out of school, when you start to realize that they need that behavioral shift, right? Like it is our job to discipline them, but for anybody listening that cares or that has a kid or wants a kid or whatever is listening here, you realize that they react so much differently when a different authoritative figure besides yourself responds to them. And at school, he just flies leaps and bounds behaviorally. So I didn't have a list of resolutions or like multiple things. My one thing was just as it is continually a work in progress for me is just being present with my emotions and realizing what emotions are just passing through and which ones I need to pay attention to and deal with. So really just presence of mind is my main overarching resolution because again, as you will see in the conversation, having that presence of mind bleeds into every other aspect of your lifestyle. So if you're really present during whatever it is that you're doing, you can enjoy it and be grateful for it and then not have false expectations for yourself. So I'll leave you with that. Let's get into my talk. Happy, happy new year. Let's have a great year together. Here's Dr. Michelle Seeger. I am so excited and honored to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. Ditto, right back at ya. The best way to just get into it is to start by telling us about your research, your specific research and really what discovery led you to write your book, The Joy Choice? Sure. Well, I want to s- s- tell you why I even got into this field, you know, Please. almost 30 years ago. And it something very specific happened. I was mm-hmm. getting my first master's degree in kinesiology, and we were conducting a study with cancer survivors looking to see if exercise could benefit them psychologically. And so we had a control group and we had an intervention group that exercised. And what we found was that the group, when they exercised, did significantly reduce depression and anxiety symptomatology. And I thought that was the end of the story, but we called everyone back a few months after our study ended, you know, gave them the measures again, but we also did focus groups so we could really talk to people. And what I was shortly to discover was that despite the benefits people got from exercising, now you have to understand, I mean, I was in my 20s, so I was young and, you know, didn't have a family of my own at that point. And, and what I learned was that everyone, almost everyone stopped exercising when our study ended. And I was floored because I had seen the data. I had seen the improvements. So I asked the participants, why did you stop exercising? And they said, Michelle, do you have all day? I'm busy. I work. I have a family. I have aging parents. And what became very clear to me in that moment, and it really was a light bulb moment that has directed my whole career, was that People who have faced a life-threatening illness do not feel comfortable with or have the skill set and mindset to 
prioritize their own self-care through behaviors like physical activity, then we have a real problem in society. And so I'm like, that is my problem and I'm going to solve it. And so everything I've been doing has been in service of of conducting my own research, of learning from the research of others, as well as being a health coach and translating the science into usable, pragmatic interventions that really can help people change their behavior in ways they can sustain. So amazing. So tell me a little bit about your research then. Like, what was the specific research that you felt like you needed to uncover that you went out and got? What I have been primarily focused on in my own research broadly has to do with pragmatism and Mm -hmm. leaving the ivory tower to find specific concepts, specific messages, specific tactics, if you will, that go beyond, yes, we have a significant finding that we want to publish and that advances the knowledge base to how can real people use these things in the real world? And so all of my research is kind of addresses that general idea more or less. Now, right. I can tell you that I, my research started out very focused on the reasons that motivate people to initiate a behavior change. Okay. And my initial hypotheses were really focused on the detrimental impact of trying to exercise for weight loss. And, and the research really bore that out in my own studies and in decades of research showcases that. But I had a very unexpected and challenging finding. I would say, gosh, how long ago was it? It probably published in the late, before 2010, Uh suggested that exercising for health was a non-optimal reason to exercise which it really, it confused me. It concerned me because I had, I don't know if, does that shock you at all or not? Yes. Beyond. Yes. Well, because you'd think what is more, what, what should be, and I put shooting in air quotation marks, what should be more important than being as healthy as we can be. Right. 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 The beautiful thing about research is that when you get something that goes against a hypothesis, you can either doubt it and, you know, go in a new direction, or you can let it teach you and go, okay, what am I missing? What other research is out there, maybe way outside of my field that can help me understand why health is a motivator for exercise might not be a good motivator for sustainable physical activity. And sustainability is really all that I care about. And the reason is, is because health is in the future. We may never get feedback that we're achieving our health-related reason for exercising. And so that is kind of a a quick and dirty snapshot of the beginning stages of my research. And then later on, through more qualitative research and talking to participants, one of the things we found in a later study, my colleagues and I, was that we interviewed participants who were active and participants who were inactive. And we wanted to understand the role that physical activity played as a priority in their lives. And we got this very interesting finding. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little quiz, okay? I'm going to tell you two statements. And I want you to guess 
which one came from the low active group and which one came from the high active group. Are you, are you getting I'm ready. That? Okay. I'm ready. Yeah. So one, when we, this has to do with the role of exercise as a priority. One group said that with exercise, you have to commit to a certain time. And the other group said that you have to, it has to go to the wayside when you have other things to do. Now, which group do you think was the group that was the highly active group? The one that said you have to commit to a time. Well, that would be the logical response, right? But actually, yeah. that was the low active group. And, mm. and so what, what, and the reason why is because, because it pressures people when they feel I know they, it's so true. Right? I think I am an, I am a high, highly active person, but I would say not that it doesn't have to be at a certain time that it will fall to the wayside when I can't do it. But, but I, that's so interesting, but I answered the opposite way. Well, so because crazy. that's how we've been taught to think about it. And right. here we are, New Year's resolution time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's on everyone's mind. So it's very counterintuitive, but it's that type of research right. that, that makes kind sense. of led the way for me to write my new book, The Joy Choice. Yes. Because we've been taught or socialized or brainwashed to think that we need to exercise and change our eating and just, you have to do it right or don't do it at right. all. Right. Fail. And the research suggests that actually being more flexible, like our high actives in that focus group said they were, is actually a better recipe for more of us to sustain it over time. Interesting. So then how do you feel about the general concept of New Year's resolutions? I like rituals. Yes. I like reflection. I, you know, I think it is a good thing to have a time in the year when we have a ritualistic way to reflect on who we are and who we want to be. So in that regard, I think the, the time stamp of resolutions is okay. I think the challenge with resolutions is that people use them, they commit, and there's that word again, commit to them in a motivation bubble. I'm going to do it this year. I'm finally, you know what I mean? It's, it's more, it's too grandiose and it's not grounded in the realities of who we are and the realities of our values you know, I I am a big fan of Tara Parker Pope, and I think this is the second year she's done this in her column where she asks people to pick a word kind of that reflects what they care about improving or doing this year. It's not a goal. It's like it could be a value. And, and I think that's the type of thing that can, it's, it's, you know what, it's not about picking a bullseye or a North star that's way out there. It's actually turning the lens on ourselves and going into our heart of hearts and asking ourselves, who are we? What do we care about? What Right. Like going more inward. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's how I feel about them. That totally makes sense. I think going more inward really is what will exude the most 
happiness in the long run. It's not about the doing of things necessarily that then can make you feel pressure and insecurity if you don't achieve. I, I totally feel that. It's about the being of, of us, right? right Instead right. of the doing of the being. And that, I think, and, and in fact, that really also kind of redirects us to, you know, research showing that when we can link our choices like physical activity or intentional eating to our sense of self and what we care mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. The, the emerging research in that area is very exciting and suggests that, you know, when we affirm our sense of self through consciously through our choices, our healthy choices, mm-hmm. that that's a very potent motivator. Right. And then that like, envelops your whole being as opposed to just like one directed thing. Like, okay, you want to work out this much. You want to eat this way. The other way of thinking going inward is, is, is that that presence of mind will affect all of your habits or, you know, quote habits. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because you're in essence, what you're doing is the goal to exercise five days a week isn't isolated from the rest, the ecosystem of yourself, it actually is integrated into. And, you know, our lives are complicated. And if Mm -hmm. our, you know, our exercise and eating goals, if we don't know how to integrate them into our sense of self, or they don't reflect our sense of self in in, in a certain way, it doesn't, I'm not talking about like, you know, I'm not talking about it having to be this foundation in your heart. You know, I'm not talking about some, it's just about understanding how your choices help you be the best person right. you want to be and help you feel your best. Right, right. So that's what it goes into this next concept, which I wanted to discuss with you was like this concept of people either being a habiter or an unhabiter. And obviously the word habit and how you feel about that. What do those terms habit or unhabiter even mean? And how can you identify which one you fall into? Sure. Well, the first thing I want to say is the habiter unhabiter concept was a cheeky concept that I created to make it fun to critically think about who am I and what types of just have I used in the past to exercise and change my eating patterns and, and have they worked or not? So it is a concept that, you know, and I've been, even though it isn't, this is not based in my research. This is based really in my health coaching and living my life where I recognize like my husband is a habiter. And you know, if you're a habiter, if you're very disciplined and organized. Yes, my husband is a habiter too. I already know what I fall into. and, and, And then, and so it's people who tend to be very disciplined and organized. They stick to their plan no matter what, even when they're tempted. Their Mm -hmm. days run according to plan without exception. And it's, it's someone who, who basically has the psych psychological and life context wherewithal to, to pretty much do what they say they're going to do almost all the time. There's nothing wrong with that. Right? Like I love my husband and he's very successful and that's awesome. Right? Most important thing is that we recognize which type of person we tend to be so that we can pick a strategy that's going to work better, that's going to work. We have to find the fit. And so an unhabiter is someone like me whose schedule can need to change on a dime 
you know, I'm the, the, the person in, in our family who's in charge of the family logistics. Now, that doesn't mean I don't work outside of the home. It just means that I'm the designated, you know, scheduler and driver and that, and I'm in charge of the pets. And that means once anything goes awry, when anything unexpected happens, I have to pivot whether I want to or not, whether I plan to take a walk or not. And so unhabiters, that's kind of a very vague definition. And if our strategies for self-care behaviors like physical activity and healthier eating don't reflect the realities of of the necessity to change with the winds of shifting priorities, then how can our self-care plans survive? So the ultimate goal of the joy choice is to help people who are like more like me understand why they may not have been successful to date. And most importantly, learn a new method that's fun to use and why it's what, what the emerging science says about which strategies are actually most likely to be effective for more people than not. And it's not habit formation and my unhumble opinion. Right. Interesting. So then how, if it's not about, you know, like checking things off a list and forming a habit, how can an unhabiter create actual lasting changes? Because I find myself falling into the same category as you, definitely an unhabiter. I do find I have structure and organization in my own way, but I am the one that is more able to be flexible, more willing to be flexible. So then I take on that role. But how for me, like I'll get into something and then after a week, I'll either start to forget about it or it doesn't become a priority. And I know this is something that actually I've I've talked about with a lot of other moms that came up on a recent podcast. I was chatting about, about, and, and I just, I didn't even know how to really do it without like putting it in your calendar. You know what I mean? And like sticking to it. So that was like the only tip I had. So I, I, I'm glad you raised this because sometimes I forget to say this and it's really important. I am not saying that we don't need to plan. What I'm saying is, and, and it's, but it's what happens after we plan. So we need to create a new belief system or way of thinking about what comes next, because most things, so many things in life get derailed at the last minute, right? It's not just exercise. You know, if, if, a, if our dentist calls us the day before our appointment and says, hey, I'm really sorry, but I have to change the appointment for a couple of weeks from now, we go with the flow. We don't fire them and they don't feel like failures because they had to reschedule, right? It's just right. simply life. But when it, for some reason, when it comes to our eating and exercise plans, when we can't do what we plan to do, it's, it's automatically a fail. Right, right. There's just so much pressure on those specific things. The new thing that I believe we really need to understand is, yes, we need to plan. But what we need to do is hold that plan with a greater understanding about the reality of how life works. So when our plans can't work out for whatever reason, it could be we're exhausted. That could be a really valid reason. And, and what happens in that case, when it's the, when the challenge is, I just don't have the energy to do this. 
that's a valid reason. But and what that speaks to is, hey, maybe instead of doing the planned run or the planned run for an hour or gym visit for 45 or whatever it is, you go, I I think I just want to do some stretching and maybe I'll do it for half the time. Or instead of a run, I think I'll walk and call a friend and, you know, connect with nature while I move my bodies and a friend. And so we need to be more fluid. And so that means that we have to actually redefine success, not as sticking to the plan, no matter what, Mm -hmm. but as doing, making the perfect, picking the perfect and perfect option that lets us do something instead of nothing, which I call, as you know, the joy choice. It makes so much sense. And it's like, sometimes I think we, we, or at least for me, as you're saying this, I feel like I am doing those things. I'm just not giving myself credit for it. My ideal plan for today, let's just say for a small example, would be to go to an actual hot yoga class. And I know this sounds silly, but this in a big picture makes a difference in our in our health as we're talking about. But I don't have time for it. It's first day back. And I did like a 20 minute thing this morning, which I was proud of myself for, but also like wasn't good enough. And I kind of felt like disappointed in myself a little bit. But think how amazing it and and the only reason you that happens is literally because because we've been indoctrinated to think it has to it has to be high to be valuable and worth doing and a success yeah. it has to be what we planned it has to be high intensity but that is not what the research suggests actually results in more consistency and that's like the data part related to exercise and eating but if we take a huge step back and just look at how we live the rest of our lives. When our parenting situation, you know, when we make a bad call with our parenting, we may go, okay, I'm going to note that I didn't have to bark. I could, you know, but we don't like fall into this. We expect all these other areas of our lives to be imperfect because we Mm -hmm. know that that's true. And no one has told us otherwise. No one has been marketing to us with commercials for 30 years, showing us, you know, pictures of perfect bodies and telling us if we do it this way, if we buy this product and we follow this plan, we too can achieve this. Right. But that's what we've learned with eating and exercise. And it, it sets, it sets us up to feel like failures when in fact, what you did is a huge success, a huge (laughs) success. It's so true. It's so true. It's all about just like reframing your thinking when it comes to these things. Yes. You talk about decision disruptors. What are these and how do they then also threaten our self-care plans? Sure. So a lot of the the current language, the vernacular in our current day, day and age in society is people are just happy about using the term habits. And my concern with that term is it's very vague and it doesn't really point to the underlying mechanism that underlies sustainability. And the mechanism for sustainability is our decision-making. It's our choices. Are we getting, like, you couldn't, you chose. Now, you could have gone to the hot yoga, but you didn't feel like that was the priority today. So you chose not to go. And instead, you chose to do this shorter 20-minute thing that fit in. Those were decisions. We could become 
more successful sticking with our healthier, our intentional eating and, and, and physical activity goals if we thought more about the decisions we make in the moment that we need to make them. And so that's the backstory to the decision disruptors. So if decision-making is really what we need to learn how to do more effectively, then we need to understand what's going to disrupt our decisions, right? We always want to know what's going to get in our way. And so through the coaching work, you know, I've done over the last couple plus decades, I've identified these four things that tend to derail the decision-making that people do in the moment related to eating and exercise. And okay. very briefly, I'll tell you what those four decisions yeah, are. Yeah, I'd love to hear. Yeah. So the first decision disruptor is temptation. and I think anyone who hears this word is going to go, oh yeah, I know what temptation feels because it's visceral. You know, that chocolate cake glistening, seducing us across the room and we feel tempted or, or instead of some exercise plan we made, we feel tempted by the remote control and the next great show on, you know, HBO that we want to watch. That's temptation. Now these are things that happen to us all the time. But what happens is, is that we feel this visceral pull and we don't have the knowledge that can help us offset it, that lets us take back control. And as I write about in the chapter about temptation, there's new theories that are just about eating and just about exercise, which are two very different behaviors, but there's some overlapping things related to our, our brains that, that are really important for people to know. And it's that our memories of both eating that glistening chocolate cake and about exercising and maybe shame we felt in the gym or at, in PE, that those memories really influence the strength of that visceral pull. And when we come to understand that better, we, we take back cognitive control at those decision points. That's, that's the first decision disruptor. The second decision disruptor is rebellion. And do, does that, what do you, when I say that, what does that word mean to you? Well, it just means like, you know, something necessarily might not be good for you, but you want to, to do it anyways, just for the sake of, you know, taking the road less traveled kind of thing. Yes. It's yeah. like, screw you diet, you yeah. know, diet plan, screw you exercise. I, yeah. yeah, this is my choice. I'm exhausted and I'm not going to do it right now. I deserve, you know, and so rebellion reflects what's called psychological reactance. And it's a nor- it's our normal human brain mind's reaction to feeling like our freedom has mm-hmm. been removed. Then the third decision disruptor is accommodation. And this is a slightly different flavor of disruptor because this has more to do with, it's about, gosh, are my self-care needs sufficiently worthy to forego needing to feel like you're always checking off your to-do list and you're right. always like, do I really need to do this. Do right? I right and yeah. your choice you're so you you could have not done any exercise today. And and if you did it all the time, not once in a while. Like I'm talking about all people who always feel like they have to put their work ahead of their self-care regardless of their plans or they always have to take care of other people to the, 
to sacrifice their self-care and kind of going right into the fourth one, which is perfection. And perfection is, you know, it's all, it reflects all or nothing thinking. And again, your example today is a perfect example of not letting the perfection decision disruptor prevent you from doing anything. You, instead of doing nothing, you did something. And that's why the joy choice is, it's, it's, it's not just a tactic. It's a way of thinking about our choices so that we know, you know what, doing any way, shape or form of my greater eating or exercise, physical activity goal, self-care goal is a win even if I can't do it exactly right, right or exactly like I hope to. And that what that does is it's success, number one, right? So we can feel successful. Number two, we check the box of, I am taking care of myself under imperfect circumstances. And knowing that we're taking care of ourselves reinforces the value of doing, of, of our self-care in, in our daily priorities and doing it again next time. That leads me into my next question is, was once you decide, you know, what your new habit or self-care goal is, what are the actual steps to making it stick? You know, you want to make sure that your reason for wanting to do this is truly deeply compelling, not something you're going to rebel against. You know, you want to make sure that it's, I deeply care about this for the personally relevant reasons and 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 hopefully they're not future goals. So if we can learn to link um these choices and our greater goals to living kind of being our best selves, feeling our best and and and, and taking care of the people and projects we care about, those those are what really suggest are from my perspective are the most compelling reasons for sustainability. So you again, that's the that's the domino. You want to make sure that the foundation is solid that you're standing on. But then if you're not a habiter like my husband and your husband, if you, if you don't, if you need room in your life, if your life, if you do have to pivot, then you're, then you need to kind of create a grace bubble around your exercise and eating, not a motivation bubble, a you know grace bubble around your goals so that when you need to pivot, you go, okay, this isn't a fail. This is another thing I can, there are other things I can do, but that also speaks to the need not just to consider flexibility as a key tactic and success as doing something instead of nothing. You also want to learn to have a handful of options. I'm talking about flexibility as a strategy for sustainable behavior change, but there's this whole other body of research that suggests that when we're flexible, like when we use flexible thinking, that it's actually associated with better health and well-being. In essence, it's also creating a lot of patience too. And I think patience and peace and calm in our presence, you know, obviously can help our brain and our level of happiness and everything. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me some of your favorite takeaways from your book. The idea that the way we think about our choices actually can help support our our brain's innate self-management system, like our executive functioning, like that can influence how we think about it. And, and that can either set our our brain up to want to rebel, right? Or or reject a goal we had or to want to cultivate 
thinking, which is cognitive flexibility, which is one of our actual self-management or executive functions. I think the idea that when we make the perfect imperfect choice, mm-hmm. instead of it being a fail or just something we feel bland about, that we can celebrate as the joy choice, that to me, that's the fav- that's my favorite thing because who doesn't want to feel more joy at what they're actually able to do. And when we do what we're actually able to do instead of lofty goals that we actually, that we cannot sustain in the complexities and unpredictabilities of our, of our true daily life, then we learn how to be successful. You're more satisfied with what you're actually doing. And you're not just feel like, feeling like you're a physical body just existing during these moments, but that you're actually there. Yes. So it also helps you stay connected to your body because you're tuning into your body. Yeah. So important. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me. I'm, I'm so excited for everyone to hear this. Tell everybody where they can find out more about you, if you're on social, where they can get your book, all of the good stuff. Well, thank you. People can learn more about me on my website, which is my name, michelleseeger.com. There's also a quiz where people can find out where they rank with those four decision disruptors and they'll get a personalized report. And if people have book clubs, I now have a discussion guide on my website. So I'm really excited about that. It was just an honor to speak with you. You know, oh thank gosh, you for the same. opportunity. Oh, same. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you loved this episode. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I'd love to hear what you think and anything more or even less you'd want to hear about. Tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, you can find me on Instagram at Whitney Eve Port, my website, WhitneyPort.com, and my YouTube channel, Whitney Port. Peace in the streets.